This is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and what I normally do is what I'm going to do today, and that is do a recapitulation of the last four weeks, you know, because how much I love the word, recapitulation, and to sort of give everybody a tour of what we've been doing thematically. Because we're, we began Lent with, with some themes that are reproduced through, through the, uh, the four weeks, and in, including this one. And this week is about resurrection. So it's giving the, the, the people of God in our, in our liturgy and in, in the biblical witness uh, a reminder of what's ahead, even though it's going to be difficult and the things that we read are not very pleasant, that the, the outcome is, is a good one. And so we're reminded of that, but also uh, of our part in this whole process. So in uh, the first, on Ash Wednesday, we talk about the sort of main predicates for the season, like repentance, reconciliation, clean motives, and baptism, which is an important part of the season of Lent. Remember, Lent originally was the time in which the people who were to be baptized on Easter, which was the only time you got baptized in the early church, the primitive church, uh, it was a period of intensification for those who were about to be baptized. The emphasis on penance and penitence is later. And I suspect it came, as I've said many times, when the Constantinian settlement happened. Uh, Most all the adults got baptized. That was the normative age for baptism in the early church was adulthood. And the period of preparation was three years long. Now, we don't have absolute evidence that in all parts of the Christian world, people did go through a three-year catechumenate, but it was a a lengthy period of preparation. And once that was sort of solved, it's sort of like Vladimir I in Russia. When he converted to Christianity in 1000 AD, he said to everybody in Russia, step into the river. Right? Now you're all baptized. So the normative baptismal age was now young children and infants. And that has been the practice in Western Christianity and even in the Eastern Church for a long, long time now. So when we think about that, um, when we we understand that uh, penance becomes the time when you reconnect to God and you do the things you're supposed to do about uh, self-examination and repentance, turning your life around, these are not bad things. It was, uh, the, but the focus is not just that. And we also had biblical support uh, for, for thinking that this was a season of penance because in the, in the 5th century, St. Jerome, who made the, last, the translation of the Latin Bible that is still in use for the most part in the Roman Church as the official text, when it came to John the Baptist saying, repent, in the Greek text, he said penitentium agite, which means do penance. So we read that and think, well, I guess that's what John the Baptist and the Savior meant when it said we have to uh, keep the season of Lent, which is the time in which that is intensified. In the first week, we move from that to the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we talk about his temptation and the areas that he was tempted around and understood them in some way um, in terms of them constituting a template for our own lives. And how do we understand what Jesus was tempted with? And 
I repeat over and over again, Father Thomas Keating said he was tempted around the three energy centers that all of us have to uh, think about on a regular basis, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. These things are never going to go away. They're part of what it is to be a human being. So how do we understand keeping those things in balance and doing that? And how do we understand that in vocational terms? Jesus uh, was tempted by Satan. And it affords the opportunity to speak about this. Satan is not a synonym for the devil. Satan means, in the biblical text, an advocate. And all these arguments that people have about translations of the Bible that take Satan out of the Bible and so forth just don't understand. So it's important to, to realize that. But it's the advocacy. Uh, it's both internal and external, isn't it? Years ago, uh, when I was in graduate business school, I read a, a study by a group of sociologists on a practice in the workplace known as biffing. So suppose, I don't even know if this company exists anymore, but suppose you were working for the Cleveland Twist Drill Company and you're making drills and you are a drill press operator for the dies or for whatever it is that you're, you're making to help make the drills. And you're paid in the factory piecework. Do you know what that means? You're paid by how many things you turn out on a daily basis. So you've got uh, a guy who's in there with his drill press, and he's drilling like crazy, and he's just putting this stuff out. And finally, one of his uh, fellow uh, drill press operators near him comes up to him, and he says, hey, he biffs him. He says, hey, slow down. You're making all of us look bad. You don't need to go that fast. It's too much. He said, I'm getting paid piecework. I'm going to turn out as many of these things as I can. Well, have it your way, bud. So then he begins to find out that when he goes into the lunchroom, nobody will sit with him and eat their lunch with him. He never gets invited to go bowling. He doesn't get invited to go to the tavern and have a beer and play shuffleboard, you know, the kind that's internal where there you go with these little discs. You know, he's ostracized. And the effect on the workplace and all of that is, was, the, was the point of how the study works and what it is that you do. So the Satan, it could be understood in some ways both as an internal process whereby you ask yourself, do I cave and slow down? Or do I keep to my principles and exercise the kind of internal self-regulation that I need to, you know? And maybe what uh, uh, Ernest and I were just talking about, this Edwin Friedman would say, the self-regulation of instinctual drives, which means don't belt the guy who biffed you. <laughs> so that's the, the, the first week. The second week is about obedience and faithfulness. And we have the story of Abram, who will become Abraham, exalted father in Hebrew, Abram, Abraham, the father of many nations. 
And he listens to God who tells him he's got to pull up stakes, take all his people and go here. And he does. He's obedient and faithful. Abraham probably would have never used the word faith. He would have used the word trust. That's what it means in the text. So Paul takes that and he says, Abraham represents for all of us a type who was faithful. He trusted God. And he went and did this in the midst of all the uncertainty and ambiguity of uh, human existence. I watched a YouTube video. Of, you know, I'm talking a lot about the YouTube videos, but I'm watching a lot of them. And there's a really good one I've talked about uh, called the, uh, sponsored by the Veritas Forum. And they had a presentation at Harvard uh, in 2013. And N.T. Wright, the English biblical scholar, was there. Jay Harris, who teaches Hebrew at the Harvard Divinity School, and uh, a, the head of the philosophy department at Harvard now, a guy named Sean Kelly. So it was sort of a believer, believer, it was called uh, the gospel, moral guide, uh, guy, spiritual guide, or garbage. And so these three guys sort of represented the various views on this matter about what that all meant. But when we talked about, when he talked about it, he was speaking, uh, all of them were speaking a bit about Abraham and about how Paul took this up and saw in Abraham a type for being faithful and how um, our internal spiritual processes um, are, are just that, to get us to the place where we would... Uh, come to believe. Sean Kelly says, I don't know a whole lot about the Bible. I'm not a biblical scholar, but it seems to me the ideas in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are compelling, and I would like to believe them. And I think that we need this because of the age in which we find ourselves, which is in some way, all ages believe this in a sense, unique. So he quotes Soren Kierkegaard, who said, there has been a leveling in the world, in the West, where nothing will be seem to have any significance of any kind. And maybe belief in this, what it says, is going to help us find the way to combat that attitude and that idea. And so week two had something to do with hope. On week three, Lent uh, gives us some of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, which are known as the murmuring passages. The people are out in the wilderness and they're out there and, ex and they're mad at Moses because they haven't anything to drink, no water. And they're fearful that they're going to die and they're just about ready to stone him. And so Moses complains to God and God says, take some of the elders with you and go out ahead of the people to the place that I designate, and you strike that with the staff that you use to open the Red Sea. And when he does that, water comes out, gushes out, and the people now have their thirst slaked. Early Christians are going to read this passage as a type of baptism. The water that we'll talk about in a minute in the gospel for that day, too, with the woman at the well and the Samaritan woman, that it is an inexhaustible spring. 
It comes from an inexhaustible source. And so this water is not is the water of baptism, but it also, as Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, it's water that is going to slake your spiritual thirst. You won't have any spiritual thirst. You'll be fed. You won't have any spiritual hunger. And this is the promise that the Easter message is going to bring all this now full circle. And last week, uh, the readings were all about light and darkness. John's gospel is probably filled with that imagery more than any other one. The illuminative processes of God at work both internally and externally. I'll talk about this in, during Eastertide. The light of Christ is something that leads us and shows us the way. The early Christians looked at the Paschal candle and they said this is a symbol of the pillar of fire in the wilderness that is leading the people of Israel and showing them the way, the light. So we understand the light that way and we also understand the light as the internal processes of God illuminating our dark places where we need to have some, maybe some work to do but also showing us those things that we can and should do uh, to be transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love. And this week, we then talk about resurrection, which is the end result of all this. The, the biblical witness during Lent at the beginning and throughout Lent says, this is, we're go we've got some things ahead of us that are going to be very difficult, hard to read, hard to understand or explain. And so we just want to remind you as we go along what the end's going to be. It's all going to turn out okay. You know, Dame Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. In one of the visions that she wrote down in medieval England. So we have the first reading. Look for some of these readings, if you remember them, during Holy Week and during the Great Vigil, because they'll be read again. They're considered a type of what the church has believed. And this reading from Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones, is one of those readings about being reconstituted. And Ezekiel is talking about God's spirit reconstituting the people in this way. In 1833, John Keeble, uh, the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford, preached a sermon to open the courts in England. It was called, they're called the Assizes. And they used to have a, priest or a, a preacher come and preach the opening of the season of the hearing of the cases. So he preached a sermon in 1833 on this text. And it is considered by historians to be the opening of what we now call the Oxford Movement, the Catholic Revival in the Church of England in 1833. John Henry Newman, John Keeble, Edward Bouverie Pusey. You've heard of most of you probably of John Henry Newman because he became, sorry to say, <coughs> Cardinal Newman. So uh, that is, that's who started all of this. And he preached on this. How do we understand reviving and revivifying the church? And how do we recover the principles that we know existed in the church for a long time 
and ha we have drifted now into a kind of Erastian, which means established church mentality and frame of mind, and how do we recover a certain freshness uh, to our faith and our purposes? And what he was preaching against was Parliament wishing to eliminate a number of bishoprics in Ireland because they had no Anglicans in them. They were empty. So it would seem to be practical. And Keeble said that's not the Parliament's business, that's the church's business, and they need to make those decisions. And it's typical now of how we make decisions, and we ought not to. So he used this text from Ezekiel Can these bones live? My, my, one of my former bishops for about 14 years, Bishop William Swing, uh, said to me once, he said, I believe in the resurrection because I've seen it in my own life. Personally, and in other people's lives. He's not speaking about uh, the, the, re the revival of a corpse. He's speaking about how new life comes to people in the midst of what appears to be moribund death and decay, both emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And that each one of us, uh, because of our faith in God, can be lifted out of that condition. And he said, that's why I'm, I believe uh, in the resurrection. Paul in Romans today is talking about the spirit. Here's, here's Paul in a nutshell. One God, one people, one future. Animated by the Holy Spirit of God. Now you have to study on, you have to read a, a lot of Paul to even begin to comprehend what that means. But the fact is that uh, his turgid writing uh, has, is, has this embedded in it, this message. And so Paul today is speaking about the operation of the Holy Spirit of God and the uh, juxtaposition of the spirit and the flesh. Paul, when he uses the term spirit, is everything that is connected to God. And it means everything that is the highest and best of our humanity. And when he speaks about the flesh, he's not speaking about the physical body or the physical world. He's not repudiating that. He's speaking about all the forces that exist in the world, both personally and corporately, that turn us away from God and in on ourselves. In the 1980s, there was a book published by, I can't remember his name now, called The Age of Narcissism. It was a, fam it was a bestseller, right? And I think narcissism is something that has uh, been part of... Uh, uh, humanity all along, but uh, it seems especially prevalent these days, you know. I saw a t-shirt on a woman here about eight months ago on um, University Avenue right near the steamers, coming out of steamers, and on the t-shirt it said, it's all about me. <laughs> I mean, if you believe it, own it. I guess that's the right thing. So Paul says that's the sort of stuff that we, 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 we want to avoid. And finally, the gospel is about a resurrection story. It's about Lazarus who died and Jesus raised him, raises him from the dead. And all of the things in this long reading 
uh, are about ways in which we can think about the processes of new life. And Martha and Mary are back in there again, and there's all this about uh, the light and uh, all of these things. So it's a, it's a very, very good thing. You know the good, famous story. These two women are in the house, and Jesus is in there. And uh, they, they're uh, going to serve him something to eat. And so uh, Martha is in the kitchen making the dinner or whatever it is. And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so Martha comes out and says, would you please ask my sister to help me? I'm trying to get this stuff organized. She's just sitting there. Can't you tell her to do that? And Jesus says, you are distracted, Martha, by much serving. (laughs) Mary has chosen the better part. Maybe that's a story like I remember when I was a kid on Thanksgiving where somebody uh, doesn't like creamed onions. And we have to go on a 10-minute conversation about not eating them or eating them. And the person who prepared the creamed onions is hurt because everybody didn't eat them. So we're now on a long thing like that, right? So, so really what it's a story about is the contemplative and active dimension in human life and that they're both necessary and they're not mutually exclusive. And that's what, that's what is being spoken of here. So this week, um, give thanks for the possibility for, of, of new life, of the power of new life at work in you, and understand that this now poises us to be uh, on Palm Sunday ready for uh, big events. Amen. Amen.